Amen. Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning once again to the Acts of the Apostles where we are going to be looking together at, verse, at, together at chapter 4 verses 32 through 37. That's Acts chapter 4 verses 32 through 37. You can find that passage on page 1073 in your pew Bibles or on page... 24, I believe, in your Acts journals. And if you've not had the opportunity to grab one of these, I saw this morning, we still have a few of them available. They are free. Please take one uh, and and feel free to use it. It's our gift to you. And uh, we've had a lot of feedback that people are enjoying using those. So they're there if you need them. In our look together last week at the verses preceding our text this morning, we found the apostles, more specifically Peter and John, being released after their brief stint in the temple jail, having been warned not to speak any more publicly or teach anyone else about the name of Jesus Christ. Of course, Peter immediately responded to the elders and the leaders of the temple that that request would not be possible for them to follow. They would certainly obey and trust God before they did men. As these men, the the Sanhedrin, should have known. And they had been commissioned, after all, to testify of Jesus Christ and His resurrection. It was their purpose. It was why they were there. They were there to be His witnesses and to be bold proclaimers of the wonderful gospel of hope. And upon their release... You remember that they went and they found their brothers and sisters in Christ. They ran to the church. And as I mentioned to you, it's very telling about these men and their mission. They did not immediately seek out the comfort of their own families. They did not seek out the comfort of solitude and silence. They did not go off with one another and lament their lot in life, seeking the false comfort of self-pity. No, they were purposeful in where they would find the comfort of Jesus Christ, and it was with his people in his kingdom. They sought out and they found the ever-growing body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I mentioned to you last week, It's convicting, isn't it? Now, where where do we go when we are wronged? What do we seek when we are feeling the sting of offense or resentment? Where do we run when it seems as if the world itself has turned against us? Well, these men ran to the kingdom collectively to seek the face of their mighty and gracious King. We saw something else there. They gathered, they ran to the church, they gathered with the people of God, and what did they do? They prayed. This is a praying kingdom. It was their comfort to seek the face of Jesus Christ through prayer with the people of God. Luke didn't tell us very much about that meeting other than that. 
They simply found the church, they brought the saints up to speed with all that had taken place, and then collectively they hit their knees and cried out to God in prayer. And Luke also thankfully gave us the content of that prayer. And we looked together at what the prayer consisted of. And we saw immediately that it began with a very vast knowledge of who and what God is. They together proclaimed in prayer those loaded words, You are God. They were saying, There is none like you. You alone are God. You are higher than all things. You are so far above us in righteousness, holiness, perfection, and majesty. You are God. You are our Father. This is your world, your creation to rule and reign over as you see fit. Because you made it all. You spoke it into being. And you remember in that prayer, they began to pull out the attributes of God as they cried out to Him. We saw there in that prayer His sovereignty, His wonderful providence, His omnipotence, the fact that He's all-powerful, His omniscience, that He knows all things, His mercy, His goodness, His patience. And we saw that their prayer was rooted in the Word of God. They went to the words of the psalmist in Psalm 2 as they prayed together. Again and again we are reminded of these apostles, especially Peter here in these early chapters of Acts, and their extensive God-given knowledge of His Word. As they consider the situation that has unfolded and is still unfolding around them, they see the words of Psalm 2 in light of their situation and they ask, why do the nations rage in vain? And you understand the point. Why do they bother? Satan's defeat is sure. He can never slow, he can never thwart what God has purposed to do before the foundations of the world. These leaders of the temple are never going to stand up against the will of God. Who could ever even think to stand against the majesty of God, our God? It's the height of folly to do it. Because there is none higher. No one makes him their subject. He alone is God. And finally, beloved, we saw what they were petitioning the Almighty Four, on the very heels of their arrest, they're being handled roughly. They said that the word says they, they laid hands on them. They threw them into jail, and then, of course, they were released. And what did they ask for? Again, beloved, it's convicting. I can tell you, for me, it's convicting. I would have grumbled. Look at what they asked for. Or perhaps... Think for a moment about what they didn't ask for. There's no mention of God removing these wicked men from the earth for daring to stand in the way of building the kingdom of God through the preaching of the gospel. That's not what they asked. They were not together begging God to supply them with immediate relief from their current difficult circumstances and their suffering. There's none of that there. They were not even asking God to supply 
their material needs so they could go about building the kingdom of God under fierce opposition. No, do you remember what they asked for? They asked for boldness to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what they asked for. Why? So that the broken image bearers all around them might find the joy of sweet relief for their souls. Even the souls of their enemies. It is a selfless request. They do not complain at all about their enemies, but they ask God to keep them proclaiming boldly the truth so that even their enemies might find life. We begin to see that this is what the gospel does. They cry out to God together. They've been renewed and restored by the grace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, opening their minds and their hearts to the truth of the gospel. And that transformation, beloved, does not just lie dormant. It's not at all powerless. It does something. It rids us of the reign of self in our hearts. It causes us to give up on our own tiny kingdoms and live grateful lives under the big sky kingdom of God. It kills self, and it produces something in its place. A supernatural love for God and our neighbor. That is the fruit of the gospel. And that is what we saw there in this praying church at the end of Acts chapter 4. It is gospel-produced love for neighbor that seeks an end to their fellow broken image bearer's misery by pushing them, pushing all people towards the loving and open arms of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God graciously shakes the earth under their feet in response to their prayer. He gives them a resounding, yes, I will. He will give them all they need to be his witnesses. Beloved, what a beautiful picture of life in the kingdom of God. And in the text that's before us this morning, we begin to see another action of faith beginning to take shape. Another kingdom quality, if you will, begins to rise up to the surface. We've witnessed that God's kingdom is indeed a kingdom of power and glory. We've also witnessed that His kingdom is a praying kingdom, a kingdom where we commune with the King. And this morning we will also see that His kingdom is a generous kingdom. Not simply in form, but in heart, mind, and soul. These things flow not from our so-called good intentions, but from our being united to the life, death, and resurrection of the reigning and risen King, King Jesus. So if you've not yet done so, I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles again to chapter 4 of the book of Acts and follow along as I read the closing verses of this fourth chapter, beginning with verse 32 
and reading through verse 37. Hear now the word of our Lord. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things that he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone who among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joses, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to look at your word this morning. We pray that you would clear our hearts and our minds of the many things in this life that distract us. And for the moment, Father, we pray that we would give our undivided attention to your word so that hearing your word through the power of your spirit, we would be transformed by that word for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just a little bit of housekeeping here before we begin to dig into this text this morning. I want to point out that this really is going to be but part one of a two-part sermon that will conclude next week. And I think you'll see the reason for that. I believe that the end of chapter four here in the book of Acts probably should have been the beginning of chapter five. Because what we have here is a comparison, or probably more accurately, a contrast of two very different people in the church of Jesus Christ. There is a world of difference between Barnabas as a follower of Christ and Ananias and his wife Sapphira as followers of Christ. I'm not going to get too far into that this morning, though, because I think that there really is enough going on here with the state of the early church at this point in time that truly is beneficial for us to spend some time here on, and I think it's positive. We will consider some of the negative next week. Certainly there is much that is positive that is going on with this gathered group. And Luke has been continually giving us these sort of roster adjustments or these updated tallies in the church, if you will, letting us know that the church of Jesus Christ is growing here in Acts in a profound way. Luke tells us at this point that there are about 8,000 men alone in this newly formed church of Jesus Christ, not counting women and children. And most conservative commentators estimate placing the actual number of the church then in total at this time to be about 20,000 souls. 20,000. And that really is an incredible number when you consider that at this point we really are only just a couple of months out from the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ at this point. 
two months. We're, we're a couple of months out from his ascension. And Luke has made it very clear in each of these updates to speak plainly about the unity of this rapidly growing church. They were of one mind. They had all things in common. They were in one accord. And he does it again here. He says to us, says to us again, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. They were unified. Not uniform, but unified. We've spoken to that particular difference before. And I want to make it clear to you this morning. They were not all the same, these people. They did not all have the same blessings and gifts. They were not just equal pictures of the good life. They came from different places. They had different families, different backgrounds. They had come from differing traditions. Not at all uniform, but certainly unified. They were united in one hope, one faith, one Savior and Lord. Overall, And we've witnessed the results of that unity here in Acts. Luke tells us they were of one mind in one accord as they awaited the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the beginning of chapter 2. They were again of one mind in one accord after Peter's Pentecost sermon as thousands of souls came running towards the arms of Jesus at the end of that second chapter of Acts. They were, according to Luke, raising their voices in prayer in one accord of one mind in the passage we looked at last week from this fourth chapter. They were united, they were unified in their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They had together been united to His life, His death, and in the power of His resurrection. They had faith that not only knew the Lord Jesus Christ, but trusted Him entirely. It was not just blind faith. They knew God's Word, and they trusted God's Word. And we need to see that at the very center of the powerful work that Almighty God was doing through them at this point as He begins to call His sheep home. Thousands were running to him through the spirit-empowered proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the source of the power, Luke tells us in verse 33. He says, And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Almighty God is uniting his church in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the effect of being in Christ or the effect of having been transformed in a powerful way by the gospel is this unity of mind and unity of purpose that we see here in the text before us this morning. 
I want to point out just a couple of things to you here about that unity. You know, I think first we need to see that in this unified body, this group of believers, these followers of Jesus, have unity in their identity. Do you notice that here? Do you know what I mean by that? Unity in their identity. I think we see it here in several ways. Some of it is implicit in the text by what they are not doing. They are not finding their identity in what they were as individuals. They do not fancy themselves as mere rebels of the establishment. There's no talk here of holding on to their various national identities. We know there are both Jews and Gentiles in this group. There's no nationalistic talk going on among them. They're not finding their identities in how long they've been following Jesus. Again, we know that the amount of time varies between all of these people rather significantly. Some of those gathered here have been with Jesus from the very outset of his earthly ministry. Many others have invested maybe a couple of months, a couple of weeks, a couple of days, a couple of hours. It does not really matter. They are joined together in their love and appreciation for Jesus and consequently in their love and appreciation for one another. They are also not identifying in their different social statuses. There are folks here from all walks of life. (coughs) Excuse me. There are those who certainly have amassed wealth in their lives. And there, there are those who are grateful to have been redeemed, and yet they still have needs. Needs that are being met by the body of Christ. Beloved, I say all this to say, this is what the church of Jesus Christ looks like. They are not defined by their individual circumstances, but by their union with Jesus Christ through God's gift of faith. They identify with their King. Do you understand? They are in His life, His death, His resurrection, By faith. And because of that, they have absolutely no misgivings about the stuff of this life. About their need for material things. Money, food, clothing. They're not spending any of their time on those kinds of things because they know that everything belongs to their God. Their King. It's all His. And he has promised to care for them, to provide for them as they do his kingdom work. And it's enough. Again, beloved, it's convicting, isn't it? Uh, These people aren't stressed about buildings or lawns or the way people are dressed or whether or not everyone came from good families. They simply live to serve the king. That's their identity. 
Their identities are entirely in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is who they are. Secondly, we need to see here they are united in the power of the gospel. Do you see that? They have become witnesses through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the Holy Spirit's empowered witness of others. And they have been joined together with those witnesses in power. And maybe you're saying, well, what does that mean? What do you mean they've been joined together in power? Well, I want you to understand what's going on. Through transformation, dead things have been collectively given life by the grace of God through the power of the gospel. And that's not a small thing. This is not faith that is formed through just wishing enough that it were true. This is not a group of people that are tied together through only their family heritage. This is a community of faith in Jesus Christ. They are united to the Lord Jesus by that faith and they are now seated with Him in heavenly places. They were once possessors of stony hearts and they've now been given hearts of flesh. They once were blind, now they have been given eyes that truly see. They once were deaf, and now by the grace of God, they have ears to hear. They were once lame, and now they are walking and leaping and praising God. They are unified in the powerful transformation of God going on in them and all around them. And the church is powerful in this unity. We need to see it. Beloved, do you see it? Because it certainly raises some questions in our minds, doesn't it? If this is what it is, then what could ever be worth severing those bonds over? God is building his kingdom. So what is it that justifies our wanting to tear it down? But we do it, don't we? We separate. We put space between ourselves and our brothers and sisters in Christ over the silliest things. And I understand they never seem silly to us in the heat of the moment. But surely as we take a step back and we look at this early church, as we consider their unity of purpose, we see the silliness in it now, right? God brings his people together in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He drives us, drives all of us to the feet of the risen King and there is powerful grace there. There's grace for healing, healing relationships. There's grace for the weary and the heavy laden to find rest. Grace to stand up arm in arm for the name of Jesus Christ. Grace to speak the truth of the gospel even to those who do not want to hear it. We would be so much better off 
to live in this power that unites us than to exist miserably in those petty little things that always seem to get in the way. God has called his church to be his spirit-empowered witnesses. It's a high calling. (coughs) We should rally around it. Let's rally around caring for the broken ones by the grace of God. Because he gives us grace for that. Grace to weep with the brokenhearted. Grace to care for those less fortunate. Grace to get over ourselves and live for something bigger. (coughs) God unifies us in power for those very things. Beloved, do you see it? This is a powerful kingdom. It's the kingdom of God. And I know all these things sort of flow from one another. I want to look at one more example this morning that I think we need to see here. God unifies his people in purpose. Can't afford to miss it. We must see here that the people of God have an understanding of and are certainly united in the purpose standing behind God's blessings. And I know we're only going to scratch the surface of here, this here this morning, and I, I do hope it won't be the last time that you think about this. It's something we should all think about often. I want you to understand that this is not something <coughs> that came after the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the formation of the New Testament church as we know it. The purpose of God's gifts to his people, excuse me, I don't know if I'm going to recover. The purpose of God's gifts to his people has always been one and the same. And Luke knew it. And Peter knew it. And I am certain that the words of the psalmist were there as they interacted with one another in precisely the way that they did. We read it this morning in Psalm 67. Did you hear it? Because it's certainly there. And it's in many other places in the Old Testament. Did we catch it? I want you to listen to the opening words again. I want you to consider it in light of the way that this church here in Acts is living. God, be merciful to us and bless us. Asking God for his blessing is a good thing to do. But why? Why do we need his blessing? What did this apostolic church understand that made them so very generous with one another in doling out those blessings instead of holding them more tightly than they are? The psalmist tells us why. God, be merciful to us and bless us. Why? That your way may be known on earth, your salvation to all nations. Let all the people praise you. Let them sing for joy. 
What the psalmist is crying out to God for and what the church of Jesus Christ is doing here in the book of Acts are one and the same. Lord, bless us that we might be a blessing to others. Lord, make your face to shine upon us that we might show others the way of your favor. Lord, show us Jesus Christ and life in him that we may see the nations sing for joy when they see him. Bless us so that we can take the gospel to the very ends of the earth. They are unified in purpose. Do you see it? No one lacked amongst them because God was caring for them through one another. God is equipping them with all that they will ever need. No one was clinging to their right of ownership. No one was pursuing wealth at the expense of others. No one was trying to up their personal clout game because none of those things had anything at all to do with their unified purpose for even being alive. Why were they alive? Why were they together? To proclaim the name of King Jesus. To make known His salvation. To be light in the darkness. To bring hope to the hopeless. To see the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ restore what sin had broken. Beloved, do you see it? Because Barnabas did. He sold a piece of land and he simply came in and he laid it at the apostles' feet in essence saying, use this to build up the kingdom. Use this to get the gospel to the corners of the earth. Use this to show people Jesus. Care for the church. Love the church. Show everyone, show anyone the Lord Jesus Christ. This heart is evident here. And in Psalm 67, and it, it's, it's exemplified in this man. He made no demands. Can you imagine? He actually trusted the apostles to use it as God would have them use it. He was humble by the gospel. He's not asking at all for his name to be remembered. He's not asking to be memorialized. He says, look, here's some money. Use it to relieve some suffering. Show sinners Jesus. Give those who are hungry bread to eat. Care for the poor. Glorify God with it. He's submissive to the authority that God had placed him under. He's not telling them what needs to happen. He's not interested in his legacy again because he knows by faith that that is a worthless pursuit and it will save no one. Did you hear me? Your legacy will save no one. We have to get Jesus in front of them. You see, Barnabas isn't doing this publicly. He doesn't want or desire to be remembered for his generosity. He does not care about receiving credit. He lives entirely for the king. 
He cares about people finding life in Jesus Christ. His life is not at all about him. And that really is the difference in motive, isn't it? He's being generous because, beloved, he is generous. Why? Because he had been the blessed recipient of the generosity of Almighty God. They had been given the righteousness of Jesus in the place of their sin. It's not a very fair trade. They had been given life when they knew that they had only earned death. The people of God are generous. The kingdom is a generous kingdom because we have a generous king. Beloved, do you get it this morning? Because this is what God's blessings are for. And this apostolic church embraced it and lived not for some false sense of security, not for the peace of being financially stable with plenty of stuff to fall back on. They lived to bless the kingdom in the name of the king. To build it, to feed it, to clothe it, to equip it, to do the work of being the witnesses of King Jesus and his glory. And they did it because they loved the king. They were devoted to the king. They lived to talk about the king, to be his witnesses, not for themselves. So the only thing that they gripped or held on to very tightly was him. It's tough to hear, right? What do we do with that? What about you? What about us? What are the purposes of God's blessings for us? Are they any different? I think that we know that they are not. It's so easy to make the Christian life all about the peripheral things and to forget why we're even here. So we should unite in this purpose. To speak the truth of the gospel to a world that desperately needs to hear it. To preach Jesus and his wonderful salvation in a community that I promise you is not at all short on pain and suffering. Not at all deficient and trouble, and difficulty. Beloved, I want you to understand, there's not a life here today that has not been touched by the ravages of sin. Not a life. Are you grateful? Will you cry out to God, Lord, bless us, so that we might bless others with the hope of the gospel. Well, beloved, we must. It's why we're here. You understand, we're here because we too are witnesses of Jesus Christ and his glory. We are witnesses of the hope of the gospel. 
or we're doing everything wrong. That's the truth.